from Fresh Air Studios in Plymouth, this is In Conversation With, the podcast from Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce, presented by Stuart Elford. With special guests, local business legend Peter Vosper. When I was very young, my grandfather took me to London and I had to ask what the smog was. Right. Having never seen anything like no, it. No, of course. And never seen anything like it again, fortunately, yeah. in that regard. But I think, you know, you do appreciate what you have got down here. Stephanie Marsh, employment lawyer at Wolferston's Solicitors. I think the best word personally, although it's a slang word, is for jellyfish. Oh, go on and then. Wibbly wobbly. And Dan Silver of the charity Dash of Silver. Yeah, it was on my last legs, look, little my eyes, can breathe, can walk properly, can focus. Hello there, I'm Stuart Elford, Chief Executive of Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce, with another edition of our In Conversation With podcast from Fresh Air Studios here in Plymouth. And today I'm delighted to be joined by local businessman, in fact local legend, Peter Vosper. Welcome, Peter. Thank you very much, Stuart. Or should I say Dr Vosper? Because you do have an honorary doctorate from Plymouth University, don't you? I do, but I have to say that it's not something that I uh, adapted to using easily. (laughs) You're not offering your services to uh, examine dodgy rashes or anything, no? (laughs) Definitely not. Well, we'll come back to your honorary doctorate later, but I'd like to go back to where it all began. I mean, you're a local boy, aren't you? Is that right? Born and bred here? I am, indeed. And an accountant by background? And an accountant by background, indeed. So is that what you wanted to do? Did you think you were going to be a chartered accountant? Oh, no, definitely not. I always wanted to go into the motor business, and I had some very clear plans of what I wanted to do. I'd already, at 16, written to General Motors in America and Mercedes-Benz in Europe, and I was planning a management course with either one of those two companies. Were you? So you always knew this was it, it was going to be the car business? Oh, I'd been car nut from when I was five. Okay. And Vospers itself, that was your father's business, was it? Yes, my father founded the business. He started by selling bicycles down in Russell Street in Plymouth. His father was across the road selling radios and televisions. And he then decided that he, again, was very interested in cars. So he sold one or two cars before the war, but then came back seriously after the war. And in 1946, Vospers as a motor business got going. Oh, right. And did he have a brand then? Was he selling a particular no. brand or just anything? No, it was purely and simply selling the odd used cars. Ah, right. Second-hand car salesman. But you joined in 1966, is that right? Yes, I went from school to Whitmarsh, Edgecombe and Preedy on Mutley Plain and Stanley Edgecombe, a very well-known character in the area, was my principal. And once I'd done my five years, I joined Vospers. Right. So I don't want to make you feel old, Peter, but 1966, I wasn't born. I was born in 67. So you started at Vospers Motorhouse. And was that planned? You always thought, I'm going to go into the family business now because of your love of cars? Yeah, I mean, my mum was a wonderful woman, a very tough character. And she was the one that told me that if I wanted to join the family business, and she realised that I was interested too, she said, your father doesn't need somebody who knows about cars. He needs somebody to help him in other ways. Uh, so With the money. I was a choice of either being a solicitor 
or an accountant and I didn't really want to be either but I decided that I would go and try accountancy and in spite of my very good education I didn't realise until I got to adding up a lot of books that I was numerate. Ah, so you can actually add up. <laughs> yeah. So that's interesting. So you did the accountancy because you thought it would add value to the business and it was a good background. Have you found that was useful going forward? Have you called on that over the years? Well, all the time. Yeah. So you still advise a good career for people to do? Well, when you're dealing on a net profit margin that in the motor trade is somewhere around 2%, you can't make many mistakes. Is it really that low? Wow. Do you know, when I first left school, you'll remember them. I worked at Pat Wilson & Co. There was a Citroen garage oh, in Colbrook. In Plimpton, yeah. That's it, yeah. So just for, a f- I think I was there for less than a year, but I thought when I left school that because I liked cars, I'd like selling them. But as it turned out, I didn't love the sales process. And so I went on and joined the police service, actually. But interesting that we both have that sort of start in the garage business. Do you (laughs) remember Pat Wilson? He was quite a character by all accounts. He he was a character, yes. He won the Isle of Man TT in his class and apparently was quite a reckless sort of chap. Well, I think most of the motor trade were characters when I was a young man and I met many of my father's friends and of course the biggest probably social club in Plymouth around that time was the Plymouth Motor Club. Was it? And a lot of social events took place and it grew in strength indeed over the years. And I mean, George Turnbull, who was the Turnbull, George was a very good rallycross driver. And I used to watch him go around at a field in Ivybridge in those days. And did you ever have an aspiration to be a driver? Could we have seen you in Formula One or... Well, I always wanted to do it, but I think probably the truth is that I was lucky in terms of the fact that I realised fairly quickly that I wasn't probably good enough. And more importantly, a man came to see me who was good enough. So we had a Vospers rally team for many years. I'd forgotten about that, but now you say it. I've seen, didn't you have a Ford RS200 in your showroom? I've still got an RS200. Ah, well, I'm going to come back to your cars in a minute. When you started 1966 and 1974, you became managing director. Well, my father died, unfortunately, at 54, which oh, I'm sorry. wasn't expected. And That's my age now. Uh, oh, I am sorry. It's uh, one of the things, again, that changes life for you mm. in terms of what your training was going to be. And again, I still had aspirations that I would perhaps get some outside training away from the business. In fact, at the end of the day, I spent some time with Ford Motor Company and did some training with them. But actually... My father trained me for seven years, basically. Mm. I lived with him daily, reported to him on the numbers daily for four years and then worked as general manager, talked to him every day. And I think I was a very lucky man at the end of it because I got very good tutelage from him. Yeah, good apprenticeship. Absolutely. Uh, Forgive me asking, how old were you when you took over as MD then? 31. Oh, young man, really. Young I mean, looking man. back, you wouldn't expect to be a managing director at 31, would you? Well, no, and I think, you know, you realise the real world you're in. When I rang Ford Motor Company to tell them that my father had died, and the first question I got was, can you manage it, Peter? Oh, right. And I said, yes, I can. I said, good, get on with it then. Oh, was it uncaring or caring? I mean... No, no, I, I knew the man, and I knew what he had to do from a job point of view. We had another conversation, but really the simple thing was that I had built 
a relationship with a number of the Ford directors, fortunately, mm. because Plymouth was a two-dealer city, as they called them prior to 1970. And they made the decision in 1969 that they got their forecasts wrong about the population rise down here, right. so that they only needed and could justify only one dealer. Right. So we were chosen to do that. And at the same time, it was a convenient time for Reeds, who were the other dealership to retire mm -hmm. and their business was being demolished because of changes to the area and I think it gave me the opportunity to present numbers to the Ford directors and form a relationship which lasted for many years. So were you one premises one brand then? We, in fact, at one stage, were probably about six or seven brands. Different situations to what you've got today. I was going to say, you've got many now, but back then were you just Ford and just one premises? Or? No, we were, in fact, what they would call, in some cases, sub-dealers. Ford call them retail dealers now, mm. although they are disappearing shortly. Mm. But we sold Jaguar, Ford, Volkswagen, Simca, Fiat amongst others. I think that, you know, my father was in that business of selling both new and used cars, mm. but the main stay of the business was still used cars. But now, of course, you've got a number of brands and you're all over Devon and Cornwall, is that right? Yeah, we stretch from Exeter down to Truro now, and we've got a number of businesses in between, but we represent, I think, something like 10, 11 brands. So it has grown. I think maybe things might change again who knows okay is that a hint are you going to reveal an exclusive on our podcast no i'm not but i think that you know the manufacturers are looking to move to something called agency mm. which actually isn't agency so we'll see whether or not it gets modified but there's some discussion going on at the moment. And, for example, if you want to buy a new electric Mark E Mustang, a Ford product, mm. then you're supposed to do that online. OK, so I've driven the Mustang Mark E, courtesy of you. Yeah. So I did a write-up for our magazine. It's yeah. a fabulous bit of kit. Yeah. What does that mean, agency retail? So you're moving away basically from having car showrooms? Is no, that what the manufacturer will want us to do is that we will have a situation where we will still have some product. We will do demonstrations. We will prepare vehicles when they arrive from the manufacturer, hand them over to the customer, and then... And of course, look after them, mm. provide warranty facilities for them and service. As opposed to having a stock of cars that you sell from. Yes, I think that there may well be different manufacturers with different views about that. There may be some that still want to hold some stock. Ford have traditionally been people that like the dealers to hold stock. But I think maybe COVID and the current situation has changed that. OK, I'll come back to the future of the motor industry. But I've got to ask you, because, you know, a lot of car brands, a lot of cars over a lot of years. Do you have a favourite? Was there a car you look back on and go, that's the one. I love that car or any particular memorable car you thought I was lucky enough to drive that? I think that, you know, there are cars for particular times of your life, aren't there? I mean, mm. driving a Ford RS 1600 in 1970 when I was still a relatively young that man... That was cool. ...was quite something. Yeah. Uh, and uh, particularly to take delivery of it at Silverstone and to drive a number of circuits. 
Wow. So that's probably your most memorable, is it? Because back then that meant the most to you? I think at that particular time it was. And I think I've been very fortunate in having a number of instances. And I've driven a number of Formula One circuits in particular vehicles over that time. And I've driven on some of the circuits, for example, Alfa Romeo have a circuit in Italy. And the man who first drove the car around with me took great pleasure in tipping the sign with his wing mirror to show how accurate he was with the size of the car. Wow. Were you scared or loving it or both? I think probably that I'm used to people showing off in cars. So, uh... Are you? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you've never done that yourself. Of course not. No, of course you haven't. <laughs> and were there any shockers? I mean, you may prefer not to say, yeah, but were any cars you just, yeah, oh my God, what a heap. I think that we, of course, were very prejudiced about our brand and I think I always believed that Ford made great quality cars. There were a few along the way that wouldn't have been my pick, but I think there were, and people are well aware of some of the cars that really didn't go well and uh, mistakes were made. I think quite a lot of horrible cars, probably too many to mention. <laughs> Any particular you will mention? Or? <laughs> well, I look, I think probably that things like the Maestro, you know, early Vauxhall Viva wasn't oh, okay. a great car. Okay. I think probably even the three gearbox Anglia wasn't a great okay. car in its square box form. But cars were evolving at that time and I think Again, you know, that there have been such unbelievable advances. Yeah, there have, haven't there? And you forget, I think, we get used to cars that are now reliable. Cars were never reliable, were they? It was a miracle if the thing started. But now you expect a car to start, you expect everything to work, you don't go in for as as many services as regularly. I look back, I don't know if I'm proud or ashamed to say that I have, in fact, owned two Ford Capris. But I can remember that was my first car that I bought myself, was a 1.64 Capri, and I thought it was the coolest thing that had ever ever lived and then many years later when I bought my first flat I had to sell the very flash XR3 convertible I had uh, for the flat and I thought well I'll buy an old Capri because I know them and it'll last me for a few months I had the damn thing for about six years it wouldn't die (laughs) I kept hoping the thing would die but it was the one that they had in the professionals the two litre gear it was like the coolest thing ever really in its time do you remember the advert for it no go on the car you promised yourself was it? Well, I didn't. I had promised myself a Capri when I was, you know, 16. But when I had my second one, I just, uh, if I drove it now, you'd appreciate how things have come on. Oh, yes. uh, you know, a friend bought an MG, an old MGB and said, would you like to drive it? And I thought, well, that's fantastic. You know, I get to drive an MGB. And it was hideous to drive. Yeah. I mean, the thing's all over the road. It's uncomfortable. You know, you forget that seat belts that have inertia reel in them and ABS brakes and, you know, windscreen wipers that work, things like that are, are actually, you know, yeah. things have come on, haven't yeah, they? Absolutely. What do you think are the biggest changes you've seen in the motor industry, either with cars themselves or the industry? Well, I guess that the biggest single change has been from having to have a number of skills to drive a car well to now where the car virtually would be able to be driven without you. Yeah, absolutely. And do you think that's, I don't want to call it the death of the motor car, but do you think we're going to see, I don't know if you call it personal transport, are things going to change the point that, as you and I would imagine, changing our car every few years or whatever is going to change? 
look, inevitably things will change because the world is such that you can't predict what the next younger generation wants to do. Mm. But personal freedom, to be able to go when you want to go, where you want to go, and in your own company, if you so choose it, which COVID was a... Even the Prime Minister gave us an advert for that, yeah. you know, uh, yeah. saying you'd be better off in your own private car mm -hmm. than you would be in a bus at yeah. that particular time. And uh, I think the people who've enjoyed it will be very reluctant to give it up. I completely agree. I mean, personal freedom, you're absolutely right. That's what it is. I can remember when I got my first moped, 16. Yeah. Oh, wow. I thought the world was my oyster. That was it. I could go where I wanted, when I wanted. And, you know, I'm actually a fan of our local bus system. I've got a great app that tells me when a bus is coming and when it's not, and, you know, all sorts yeah. of things. It tells me when to leave to walk to the bus stop. And so when I'm going to a function, an event, or I'm going to have a drink, it's brilliant. Fantastic. Yeah. But that immediate freedom of, I walk out my house, I turn the key, and I'm going where I want to go at the pace I want to go is something I would struggle to give up, I think. Well, I think, you know, there's lots of things, aren't there? And again, COVID has brought that home. An emergency, maybe you've got to get somebody to hospital or to your doctor, then, you know, you hop in the car. And it's something we take for granted, but it's something that you'll be, as I say, very reluctant to give up. Yeah. And with cars changing so much and the electric cars, and like I say, I'm lucky enough to have driven the marquee, but do you prefer or miss the roar of an internal combustion engine or are you a convert to electric? Oh, no, I'm a complete convert to electric because it's where we are today in terms of the fact that a performance car driving is pretty much an impossibility. There's so many cars on the road that yeah. you have to drive and I believe that very shortly, when you get the, if you like, freedom to drive at 70, your car will not drive beyond 70. Uh, when it sees yeah. a 40 mile sign, it will drop your speed automatically to 40. Mm. You won't like it, but again, this is the simple way to stop accidents and mm. to save people like the police and the health service the costs that they're involved in. So, yeah. Again, controlled driving is now here, whereas part of the things you could argue in the early days were that actually it was a skill, it was a pleasure, and you could drive cars at a faster speeds than you certainly do now. Yes. It's funny you should mention that because I've also driven, courtesy of you, thank you, an Alfa Giulietta for our magazine. And that, on the one hand, was a great driver's car, you know, flappy paddle gearbox, fast, handled well. But on the journey back from our award ceremony where I took it, I had all the driving aids on and it followed the white lines. It wouldn't go close to the thing in front. And you could, I wouldn't recommend it because if you try it, it shakes and says you're doing the wrong thing. But if you took your hands off the steering wheel, you felt it could drive itself. It won't let you. But you're right. It's that control. you kind of losing control or are you gaining it? You're giving control over to the car. Yeah. And I think that people don't like to admit this, do they? But the truth is that probably the computer will make less mistakes than you do. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny, it's that psychological human thing though, isn't it? So in the same way that it's very hard for you and I, I suspect, to let go of the steering wheel and let a car drive itself because there's the control thing. You know, I understand that aeroplanes today, many of them could fly without the pilot, but the psychology of would you get in a plane that hasn't got a pilot? 
it just doesn't feel right, does well, it? Well, I was very fortunate once. I was asked on a plane if I'd like to go up to the cockpit. Yeah. And the pilot said to me, this is actually going to be the first automatic landing that we do. Would you like to sit with us while we do it? Yeah. And I wondered whether it was a good idea or not. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> Can actually, I be the second or third to do it? No. <laughs> obviously, they'd done the testing and everything, yeah. but it was extremely impressive. Yeah. And I think, you know, regardless of the fact that sometimes you're irritated because you think that the automatic braking system has braked earlier than it needed to, it's other times a great comfort that it's there. Still to come. Stephanie Marsh, employment lawyer at Wolferston's Solicitors. Went swimming in the Great Barrier Reef, although I genuinely hated it. I was so scared. What, of sharks? Yeah, of everything. I kicked a bit of coral and that's me out. And Dan Silver of the charity Dash of Silver. This is my legacy and it'll live on. It will live on. You know, when I'm not here, it'll always be there. I'll make sure of that. Follow the Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce on Twitter at Chamber underscore Devon and search for us on LinkedIn. Make sure you don't miss out on future episodes. Hit subscribe now. I think car safety is going on leaps and bounds. And I think, am I right in thinking Volvo have declared that none of their cars will be involved in a fatal accident by something like 2030? And that's quite an ambition, isn't it? It is. I think it, it is a tremendous ambition because I think that although we hear some of the stories and, you know, it's quite interesting, isn't it, that apparently when we get to autonomous cars, the car will be able to decide if it's driving along and there's one person that it's going to hit, but if it moves away, it's going to kill three who are standing at the bus stop, it will make the priority judgment. To one. Oh my goodness. That's kind of scary, isn't it? I feel like we're in Terminator territory here. Wow. I'm not ready to give up the control, I think. I think I still need to be hands-on. Coming back to you, you or your dealership has won a lot of awards. You have won the Ford Chairman's Award for Customer Service 20 times? Sorry, more than 20 times. More than 20 times, yes. I'm not sure exactly how many, but I think... You know, it was an objective that we aim for. It's a simple one, really, in terms of philosophy. I'll say it because it was unfortunately probably true. If I went to some of the do's that I went to, and I was lucky enough to be the area's accountancy training, you know, you end up by having a student society. Mm. And I was the Southwest Secretary of the Student Society, which meant I had to do a lot of arrangements, got invited to a number of dinners. But when I finally qualified and I would go out and people would introduce me as, oh, I'm from Vospers, the motor trade, well, the motor trade didn't have a great great name did it right and people treated me with a lot more respect if i said i was a chartered accountant not right not something that i enjoyed okay so i felt that my father had always been a man that if he held his hand out and shook hands with you then that was exactly what was going to happen there wasn't Mm. going to be any deviation from that a man of integrity absolute integrity and i thought that it was important that What we did was that we established ourselves as being the dealer that you could trust, basically. Yeah, well, I Uh, think that's so important. And I think over the years, we've all had to learn that. And actually, it's a very professional business, the motor industry now. I'm not saying there aren't good and bad people in many industries. Yeah, all industries, yeah. But the simple answer is that in 1970, I went to America and I thought, wow, the service in America is far superior to anything that we've got in Britain. 
It isn't anymore. No, but they did lead the world in customer service. They did lead the world. Yeah, absolutely. And in 2011, you won the Western Morning News Lifetime Achievement Award. But that's 11 years ago. Are you still working? I still am working, yeah. At Vosper's? Yes. So you've handed over to Nick, your son, as managing director? He's the managing director. Basically, you know, again, it's a story I don't mind telling, but Nick and I, well, I always knew Nick wanted to be in the motor trade. He's been extremely well trained, even better than me from that point of view. I wouldn't have minded going and working for Ford Credit in Paris, looking over the Eiffel Tower as part of his training. How um, awful, yes. (laughs) But no, he's done his university training, MBA, worked with Ford Motor Company, worked with another dealer, more than capable. And particularly in this day and age and era, is the right man for the future. And I have to say in 2010, 11, he said to me, Dad, can you tell me, when am I going to be taking over the business? So I said, oh, I thought we were working quite well together, you know, and we've got a good social world as well. And he said, no, no, Dad, you have to realise you're not the future of the business. Now, only my son probably could have said that to me. How did that make you feel? I think it was a moment of realism, to be honest. And I thought about, yeah, he's absolutely right. So I said, well, look, I'm not ready to go in terms of I still like to be involved Mm. would you like to write down on a piece of paper what you'd like me to do and what you'd like to do and I'll write down what I think I might like to do and you as managing director should be doing and our two pieces of paper were remarkably close good and after a few weeks I got a knock on the door and dad I've got one on my list that I'd like a bit of advice on. And I say, good, because I've got one on mine. <laughs> Great. So you've still got that good relationship? Absolutely. Trusting? Uh, absolutely. Yeah, and I still... have very little to do with the day-to-day final decisions, but I'm informed of everything that's right. going on. And we still talk every day at least. And so you're more of a gentle hand on the tiller now, every now and again? Uh, yeah, I think that's true. I probably... Um, a person that reads. I'm involved with a couple of national committees, Mm. so I probably know a little earlier sometimes about what might be going on so I can feed back information. I don't feel that I'm a pain in the neck to anybody yet. Good. Shall I interview Nick (laughs) next week and see if he says the (laughs) same? You could well do that. (laughs) No, I should do, but no, I'm sure he wouldn't. I mean, you know, I think it's clear you've got a great relationship. You're obviously doing something very, very well. And I used to, funny enough, the expression a hand on the tiller because you're a lover the sea aren't you do i remember rightly you've had a few boats in your time i have indeed and i think if anybody ever asked me whether i'd live away from the sea the answer would be no oh, i'm with you all the way and again i don't want to put you on the spot here but i used to drink at the china house do i recall you had a very nice sun seeker parked directly opposite i did and in fact over my lifetime i've had a number of sun seeker boats and i was lucky enough to meet the two brothers that owned and Braithwaite, ran it. is it? Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and, yeah, I've met uh, them, yeah. I don't know whether you know, but the brother that really was the motorboat man, the other was a motor car man, he came down to live on the river in Wembury. Did he? And, no, I didn't uh, know that. Unfortunately, I think his wife didn't enjoy the area, probably because most of her friends were from yeah. where they'd lived before and they returned there. But, no, Robert was an amazing character and... I've been out in a number of his trial boats on occasions and had a lot of fun. 
I bet. Now, I don't want to, again, I don't want to be rude, but Sunseeker, shouldn't it be a princess? I mean, you know, you are in Plymouth. I am indeed, and I think that it's quite simple, really. I'm one of the people that's a bit odd in that regard, and that is that I like to be out in the open air. And Flybridge, for me, is not what I would call a performance boat. Like cars, I like performance cars. And uh, I enjoyed that situation. I always long for Princess to make a boat. And, of course, it's taken them a very long time to do so. But they have embarked on what is actually a serious tender for very expensive yachts, I think. But uh, I know the boat uh, you mean. Uh, so yeah. you prefer the open sports style. Absolutely. Otherwise, you would have had a princess, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we've got to say that, but yes. No, I mean, I think they're a fantastic boats, princess, and they're what are quite, in the past, would have been called cabin cruisers, mm. and that's what they're made for. They're made mm. with accommodation in a lot of cases. For me, I probably look back and I think of all the fun that I've had and I probably had more fun in my 20 foot arrow bolt where you could hop into it with the two of us Mm. and I think in the good summers my wife would call me and say would you like to be down at the marina at one o'clock I've got some lunch prepared and we just go out sit by Jenny Cliff have a Mm. bit of lunch and 2.15 I'd be back in the office how lovely oh I'm jealous now. So moving away from the motor industry, you've done a lot for other causes, some really notable causes. So I know you've supported both St Luke's Hospice and Rowcroft Hospice, also the arts with the Theatre Royal and Plymouth Sound. Is that important to you? Are those things that meant a lot to you? I think I've been very privileged. I think that, you know, to be asked, Bob Hustle, who was one of the great innovators and Plymouth Sound was one of the first independent radio stations in the country oh, right. and again led the way I think you know very famous names David Bassett was a national name known in that regard and it was something that we were brought into quite frankly from a point of view of advertising and it was Bob who said to me Peter why don't you do your own adverts Mm. and it adds a great authenticity to it and I think that it was a way of contacting with our customers and also uh, the whole business of radio allowing people to express their views openly and Mm. without any fear of upsetting anybody or maybe upsetting people but I think that it was a very healthy situation and both David Bassett and then taken over by Louise Churchill those programs were great discussions with local politicians for example people in business as you're doing now and giving them the opportunity to answer difficult questions sometimes but very much bringing the city together yeah i suppose we miss that really because we don't have that anymore do we we don't and i think local radio lost its way in that regard or maybe the radio authority lost its I, way I, yeah i agree i think it probably all went downhill when paul philpot left i think that was, <laughs> that was probably what it was i have to say that because we're in his studio but thank you paul and the hospice movement you supported those how did you get involved in that is that something that was personally important Look, I think that a couple of things in my lifetime. First of all, my father dying relatively young. Secondly, my mother always 
telling me how important health was. And then I lost my youngest sister at 27 years old, which was uh, very young in a car crash. And I think that, you know, you have a realisation that there are out there a lot of people doing a lot of wonderful things. And I have to say that they've just had their 40th anniversary, St Luke's. They have. As uh, indeed you were present also. Yeah, well, I was lucky enough to be a trustee for 10 years and chair for seven years of St Luke's. Such an amazing organisation. I feel really privileged to have been involved. Absolutely. When you look at my principal again, Stanley Edgecombe, I remember when he was poorly asking if I could go and see him and his wife told me that he was at St Luke's. And I said, well, I know it. what a wonderful place it is. And she said, yes. And he said to me that he's dying with dignity and he'd rather you remembered him as he was, which I thought was, again, something that they'd obviously made him feel, if you can feel good about it, but in a very difficult situation. And they do wonderful things. The whole of the health industry, I mean, forget anything else. Health is number one. Absolutely. And being somewhat, I think undervalued shall we say yes. in society at the moment you're involved with the peninsula medical foundation are you vice chair of that now yeah i think again that's something that it's quite interesting i got involved both with a number of things but normally because somebody has nominated me or said go and talk to peter about it and it's always very difficult to refuse because you know as i said i've been very privileged to work with a number of these organisations. And I think it's quite an honour. And what we're trying to do at the Plymouth Medical Foundation is that we're bringing in more young top doctors to get involved in research. And Derriford now is one of the leading hospitals in a number of areas that people just don't appreciate. A personal example of a friend of mine who lost three-quarters of his liver, but survived. Mm. You know, those are the kind of things that I also know that, you know, we have one of the surgeons now, which an unknown scenario uh, many years ago, but you can have a lung removed and still live. Yeah. The research is going on at leaps and bounds, isn't it? I was lucky enough to have a tour of the Brain Tumour Research Centre ah, up there, and I don't know if you've... That's Peninsula Medical. Yeah. What an incredible place. And what I was struck with was I was talking to various PhDs from around the world who were there, and I'd say to them, what are you doing here in Plymouth? And they'd say, this is where it's happening. This is where it is happening Absolutely. in the world. Yeah. And you think, why don't I know about this? Why don't more people know about it? Precisely. I think it's absolutely right. We're not very good at Plymouth about shouting about things that we do well. No, I think that's beginning to change. I'm a passionate advocate for the city. We look at, you know, the Freeport as coming the National Marine Park. We've declared ourselves as we've got the box, which is an absolute national treasure. You know, that Theatre Royal, which is one of the best theatres in the country that actors and producers want to come to. There's so much going on here that's so exciting. And I think I consider it my mission to tell everyone about it and how fantastic Plymouth is. And I think government is waking up to that, but I think Plymouthians are waking up to it. You know, it's not little old Plymouth anymore you know or nothing happens here you know I think people are beginning to say look what we've got look at the fantastic natural assets look at the amazing businesses it's a real privilege to be here really yeah it is and I think that when I was a young man and went away Plymouth was described as a city with little aspiration Mm. 
low pay, little aspiration. Yeah. And I think, although it has a wonderful history with the dockyard, having one employer that had 25,000 odd employees had its good bits and its bad bits from yeah. that point of view. And we do so much more now. And as you so rightly say, the Theatre Royal actually is the best regional theatre in the country. Yeah, I think it's one of the best theatres in the country. Absolutely. And, you know, that's Absolutely. how producers say. I mean, a lot yeah. of the West End shows start here, the sets are built here, yeah. and people don't really know that. So our mission, Peter, is to shout about it and say yeah. how great it is. So what do you love most about our, not just our city, but our county and our region? Well, I think, first of all, that you'd expect me to say this, having got to the age that I am, which is that the balance of life is not anymore just a phrase. I think that you realise how lucky you've been to have lived in an area, uh, this lovely environment that we have. Mm -hmm. When I was very young, my grandfather took me to London and I had to ask what the smog was. Right. Having never seen anything like no, it. No, of course. And never seen anything like it again, fortunately, yeah. in that regard. But I think, you know, you do appreciate what you have got down here and the ability to work hard, but to get enjoyment on your doorstep. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, I'm uh, with you on that. Quality of life for your families and the choices that you have. And people say to me, oh, you're lucky, Peter, you know, you can afford to do this and this. But actually, do you know what? It doesn't cost a lot to walk around the coast or no. go on the moors no. and lay on a beach. You know, all of those things are available to us within minutes. I completely agree. It's funny that you should say that because I asked you to send over your bio and I got a few bullet points to ask you and you ended up by saying, lucky man. Yeah. And I thought... You've had to work quite hard to be that lucky, Peter. Ah, come on. I think if you enjoy what you're doing, then you are a lucky man as well. And I think, as I said, that I've always enjoyed the challenge of the motor trade. It's one of the most volatile industries that you can be in. Mm. Remember that in the early days, purchase tax featured. And the way that the government controlled the economy was quite simple, raised it to a large amount or lowered it to a smaller amount. And of course, if you add 10% to the price of a car, it makes a big difference, particularly in those days when cars weren't available to as many people as they are today. And I think that you learn to live with the ups and downs of business Mm. and actually find them a fun challenge rather than, oh, God, you know, what are we going to do about this? Here it is. We've got a problem at the moment. We haven't got enough cars to supply, but we've got to do our best to look after our customers and get on with it. Yeah, that's a really great attitude to have. I mean, you know, enjoy the business, enjoy the challenges take each one as they came i must admit i'm not a particularly spiritual person but i do remember one year thinking well i don't do new year's resolutions but i remember thinking right i'm going to treat every challenge as an opportunity and i do remember the next year looking up thinking all right enough of the opportunities because it'd been <laughs> particularly challenging yeah. but no i think you're right stay positive i mean business can deal with almost anything if it knows what it's dealing with but a certainty is the right word So British Chambers of Commerce is pushing government to say, we need a longer-term business strategy. These short, sharp announcements don't allow you to plan. They don't allow businesses to come up with their own strategy. No, reaction time is getting less and less. You've got to be so agile, so Mm. flexible in today's world, or you're behind. Yeah, well, sage words. Well, look, before we wrap up, just very quickly about yourself. So you're married to Ingrid, is that right? Yep. Yeah, and... 
four children? Well, yes, this is my second marriage, but I've been with Ingrid for 20 years now, 20 plus years. And I have three children from my first marriage and I have two absolutely charming stepdaughters from my second marriage. Five children overall then, yeah? And you've got children in Australia? Yes, I've got both a son and a daughter in Australia, both living in different areas in Australia and both doing very different things. But they love the way of life over there, which is, I think, probably more back to Britain in the 60s and 70s. They work hard and play hard, but they love the climate and they love the outdoor life and they're happy that's the main thing that is the main thing and you get to go visit i do indeed yeah what a tough job that is (laughs) well it's been an absolute honor and a privilege to have you on my podcast thank you so much peter vosper thank you and now it's time for chamber chat where we talk to chamber members and other interesting people and organizations from across the southwest Hello there and welcome back to the Devon and Plymouth Chamber In Conversation With podcast. This second part is Chamber Chat, where I get to talk to employees of our members and find out a little bit about them and the person behind the name and the title. Today I'm joined by Stephanie Marsh, who's an employment lawyer at Wolfestons in Plymouth and is a multilingual, musical, marathon running, cycling, swimming, American football playing, conservationist who likes to ski. Welcome, Stephanie. Thank you so much for having me. That's quite an introduction. Isn't it? Are you Steph or Stephanie or Stepho or the Stephster? I'll I'll go by anything. Generally Steph, yeah. So after that intro about you being a multilingual, musical, marathon running, cycling, swimming, American football playing, conservationist who likes to ski, my first question is is, are you actually the new James Bond? I think I should be. I, don't, I think you I should be. I don't know I'd look as good emerging out of the water as he does, but I mean... Well, I, I would disagree, but that's a different <laughs> thing altogether. Wish. What is all this? That's quite a resume. Let's pull it apart. Let's start with the work stuff, and sort of work stuff, but you're a Welsh-speaking lawyer. I am, yes. There's not many of us in Devon. The worst bit is that originally I'm English. So I'm sort of a fake Welsh person, but... I'm we, saying nothing. Well, I don't want to offend anyone. Just thinking one of my vice chairs is Welsh. No, so let's carry on with that. It's worse when the rugby's on. It's whoever's winning at that point. Yeah, clearly. So I moved to Wales when I was nine, and it's compulsory to learn Welsh in school. At that time, I'll be honest, I had no interest in doing it, but you have to. So I went to the lessons, didn't try overly hard, but it was just something that I could do. I picked it up quite naturally. And again, you have to do it up to GCSE level, so I have to. You have to do it. Yep, compulsory in Wales, I know. So everyone should at least get a GCSE in Welsh. And I did quite well, I got an A star. So I thought, okay, I'll try it for AS level. Did quite well again, thought, okay, I'll do it for A level. Did quite well and thought, well, I know I want to do law at university. I'm doing quite well with Welsh. Let's combine them. I decided to do a law with Welsh degree at Bangor University. That's where the Welsh came from. And do you use your Welsh? Do you know what? Not very often down here. However, I have had a couple of clients that have spoken Welsh and I have a nice call with an elderly couple who are learning Welsh and every month or so they call in and just just, just, yeah. Are they on the clock though? I mean, you are a lawyer. They're not. They're not. I'm a nice lawyer. (laughs) Uh, Oh, you're the one. Just the one. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I've got to say to my members, I am only joking. I have worked for a law firm. I do love our members who are lawyers. Sorry. (laughs) Yeah. 
<laughs> we're great. You are. Obviously, sort of studying Welsh in Wales, I've got a lot of Welsh friends, so quite often go back and I have to speak Welsh to keep it going. Obviously, yeah. not using it down here, it's very easy to forget things. There was a Welsh festival at Cardiff Castle that I went to, and it's almost like another world where there's just barely any English being spoken. Oh, that is odd. So I'm not going to use the old sort of stereotypes that we should have a spray guard between us if you're going to say anything. But is there any word I should or shouldn't know? Something um, you can teach me that will make me sound really cool in Welsh? I think the best word, personally, although it's a slang word, is for jellyfish. Oh, go on uh, then. Wibbly wobbly. Is you, that you true just or are you just winding you me up? Get, no, wibbly wobbly. And is it true the slang for microwave is poppity ping? Yes. Yeah, it is a poppity ping. Luckily no one says that, but that, that is, is true. The, some people will go with it. Because some Welsh words are basically English sounding, but with a Welsh accent, aren't they? There yeah. are words you just... It's like French. If you get stuck for a French word, say the English word with a French accent, and you can yeah. get away with it. Well, the first thing I learned is just put EO on the end. So EO. if you're not sure, so dancing, you say dancio. Dancio. You just put EO in the end and pretty much got the Welsh word. Is that where the boyo comes from? Maybe. Maybe yes, it is. Yes, yeah. It's a really easy language. <laughs> oh, well. And can you say that long, unpronounceable place name? Ah, Slamvar. Yeah, so Slamvar Pushkwingishkogadishwindrasantosiliogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogogog
and the work experience placements were generally South Wales or Bristol. So again, sort of assumed I'd stay around the home area, but the opportunity to work as a paralegal for one of the large firms down here arose out of work experience. I hadn't been to Plymouth before, hadn't really been to the Southwest, but it was a great opportunity and sort of came down on the train and absolutely fell in love with Plymouth. Of course. It's a lovely, lovely place. And that was sort of decision made. So I accepted the position. Worked in the banking and finance team, travelling up to Bristol sort of every month or so, and my career just progressed from there. I did my training contract with Foot Anstey down here, and with training contracts you rotate seats, and you know I was really looking forward to the banking seat, thought, yep, this is where all my experience is, that's where I'll be. But I was sat next to an employment lawyer during one of my seats, and just listening to the conversations that she was having, I honestly couldn't believe it. The things that she was having to deal with, in my mind, you went to work, you do your job, you get paid, you go home, and you repeat it until you retire. But it turns <laughs> out it just wasn't that varied. simple. Absolutely. So I was quite nosy, I suppose, just every time she finished with a phone call saying, well, what was that about? That was really interesting. What's going on here? And she would explain sort of what was happening and slowly my interest, it just kept growing. Um, okay. So she would take me to client meetings with her. So I opted to do an employment seat based on that. And it's just a complete change for where I thought I'd end up. Well, I can understand why you wouldn't want something that was just repeat over and over again. Because like we say, looking at your resume, it's varied. And I can imagine you just doing the same thing for 50 years, getting the carriage clock and retiring. It doesn't seem like No, I do like a challenge. I do. Well, yeah. So I'm going to come on to that. All this sports, just reading about it makes me tired. (laughs) What on earth got you into American football? I'm not even sure where that came from. I just absolutely love it. And this is playing it. it, not watching it. So at the minute, just watch it. I played a little bit of it in university, but there's not many teams down this way. There's one, but it's quite far to travel, and it just wasn't going to work at the time. But I'm a huge fan of it. I go to all the London games when they're in the UK. I'm the one that's sort of logging on first thing in the morning to buy the tickets. I absolutely love it. It's just such a great experience. I mean, the games go on forever, But yeah, I used to watch it when it first came to the UK on. I think it was Channel Four. I used to watch on a Friday night, quite late. It was like midnight or or whatever. And they do stop a lot, don't they? There's a lot of ad breaks, a huge amount of ad breaks. Is that what it's about? The ad breaks as to stopping for the sport. Well, they stop for the sport, but then every single break, which seems to be every minute or two, there's a load of adverts. So it does make it go on for quite a while, but. I really, really enjoy it. That and baseball as well and basketball. Anything well, that American. Well, my next question. Why all this American stuff? I don't know. I think I'm a pretend Welsh American. I think that's what's happening. You're just an international woman of mystery. <laughs> you are James Bond. Yeah. American football. I suppose we can't criticise when we're a country that has a game that goes on for five days and includes meal breaks, afternoon sandwiches. You know. I can't think of a better game, though. If you stop for food, it's got to be a win. What, cricket? You mean? Yeah, you're, you're yeah. cricket okay. teased. You oh, like cricket? I used to play cricket for Plymouth as Why well. am I, I not know, surprised? I'm, I know. No, I'm let's, sorry. let's keep this interview much shorter. What sports haven't you played? Oh, that's a tricky one. <laughs> Most of them. <laughs> all of the above. A fair few. I do like sports. Yeah. 
It's funny, so when I was a young lad, which is clearly only a couple of years ago, my father was president of Fleet Cricket Club in Hampshire, and he used to take me along to the President's Invitation 11, and I got to meet people like Andy Roberts, who was the first guy to have been known to bowl at 90 miles an hour. I mean, he was quite something. I met members of the England team. I remember vaguely meeting Mike Gatting, but I was so bored with cricket, I wasn't interested at all. And I look back and think, what a wasted opportunity, because now the thought of being able to sit and have a cold beer and watch a game... See, I mean, if you get out quite quickly, you only have to play for a few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was thinking more of watching it. But, uh, so that's a little plug to all the members out there. Any corporates that are inviting people to the cricket, Steph and I are up for you. Absolutely. Cor- sorry, the very important corporate course, networking yeah. opportunity yeah, that involves beer and watching cricket or I can't any think sport. Of better. <laughs> <laughs> Still to come. Dan Silver of the charity Dash of Silver. Don't try to investigate it yourself because social media and Google <laughs> can tell you. Yeah. You think you've got Dr. an headache. Google, yeah. yeah if you type in an headache, it tells you you've got a brain tumour. Follow the Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce on Twitter at Chamber underscore Devon and search for us on LinkedIn. Make sure you don't miss out on future episodes. Hit subscribe now. I'm tired just talking about it. You've run the London Marathon in 2018. That's right, yes. So my mum had a family friend that was diagnosed with leukaemia. And I think I get quite a lot of my competitiveness and drive, I suppose, from her. So she wanted to do something to help. There's not much that you can do, but she thought if we raise some money for charity, that's at least doing our part. So she signed up for the marathon and I thought, I can't have my mum do a marathon and... Me not. not. And my sister was in the same boat. So it meant that the three of us signed up for the London Marathon. The two of them were living back home, so they were training together. I was down here sort of getting up at five in the morning in the horrible Mm. winter mornings and trying to run as much as I could. And there was the fundraising element as well. Um, So between us, I think we managed to raise just over £12,000. That's immense. For leukaemia. Yes, leukaemia care. So we're really proud of that. So you should be. Well, just completing the marathon. Oh, it was difficult. It's one of those things. Now I've done it. Never I don't again. ever need to do it again. Well, no. I ran the Plymouth half twice. The first one I wasn't nearly prepared for, and I sort of had to walk run the last half of it. And the second one I over-prepared for, thought I was a running god, went off like a <laughs> long dog, shot around the first 11 miles, got to mile 12, and just heard my own voice in my head. I could hear my own heartbeat in my ears, and I just sort of slowly, I could hear people say, he's going, catch oh, no. him, catch him. And I sort of, grabbed a road sign and slid down it in a very bad sort of pole dance and spiralled to the corner. I was just so arrogant. I thought, I don't need water. I don't need jelly beans. I just keep going. I'm great. And of course you do. And I just went, I don't know what you call it when you don't have enough blood sugar. And I just fell off a cliff. But two very kind runners sort of pumped me full of gel. They stopped. You know, they were racing, but they stopped. They gave me gel. They gave me liquid. They tried to call an ambulance. I said, I'm not having it because I was running for St. Luke's Hospice. I was chair at the time and I thought, I can't not complete. So with an arm around each, I staggered the last mile and a quarter to the finish. And there's a photo of me crossing the finishing line. I have seen dead people who look better. I mean, it was just <laughs> dreadful. I fell into the arms of a mate of mine and could barely speak. So no, I think I'm done. completing it. It was immense. I have to say in the atmosphere, that last mile... I was driven on by the crowd, without doubt. Oh, I, I couldn't was, have done it without them. You're absolutely right there. That's they wonderful, push isn't it? you through completely. I was wearing a T-shirt that said Stuart running for St. Luke's, and people going, come on, Stuart, you can do it. Get on. And I'm, uh, I can't, I can't. Well, do you know, I feel quite emotional <laughs> just saying that. Isn't that funny? I nearly teared up then, because I can remember feeling, 
I've got to finish. I've got to finish. You know, yeah. I just couldn't bear the thought of not finishing. And in fact, I beat my previous year's time, even having spent, I think it was 20 minutes lying on the wow. pavement being fed gel and water. And I beat it by two minutes. So could I ask, what was your time? Oh, it wasn't the best time. I'm going to go with all my excuses. So Get them out of the way had, first. Had shin splints. This is the best one. The hottest marathon on record. So it was pretty brutal. But it was just six hours, just over. But it doesn't matter. You did it. I don't think they'll be very happy me saying it, but I beat my mum and sister. And that was That's the only that thing that counted at that point. I can just imagine. You all got <laughs> within 10 yards of the finish line and you sprinted the last bit, didn't you? Just to say you'd beaten them. I would have, but they were so far behind me. It wasn't even the case. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to love you for this. Oh, Are you going to let them know about this podcast? You <laughs> nope, think? not nope. at all. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, good for you. So I'm coming back to this language thing. and I kind of hinted there's, you know, I see you love to travel. And is that where the love of languages come or does the travel come from love of languages? I think it's a bit of both. I love new experiences and cultures and I'm a massive foodie. So every country that I go to, I do like to learn a bit of the language before I go. Just, you know, the really simple stuff, sort of the hellos, thank yous, that kind of thing. Obviously, you know, how to order some drinks. I can order drinks in any country in the world. See, it's a gift. You put your fingers up, you go, two <laughs> beer, please. And you shout and wave your arms around and shout make the really symbol loudly. of drinking. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's so pathetic. I am so embarrassed to be English when you're abroad because I don't speak the language. I do make the effort to learn the please and thank you. Mm-hmm. But yeah. when you can just say dos ginny tonic, por favor, <laughs> and get it, what more do you need? Well, quite. And you're on holiday. So that's pretty much the only phrase you need. You're there to relax. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, I cut across you. So you travel a lot. Where have you been? What's your favourite? I think my favourite is Borneo. So just after I'd finished my LPC and before I started my training contract, I took a couple of months out and went travelling around Asia. Mm-hmm. And it was just the best experience ever. Culturally, it was so different and it was nothing like I'd experienced. And going into the Borneo jungle and seeing the orangutans, I think if it wasn't already on the bucket list... It's... The minute you said Borneo, I thought orangutans i yeah. love orangutans oh, i just they think were they're adorable. great you know you had to do the thing of adopting them while you're out there so it ticked You've everything got like off 10 still adopted haven't you <laughs> they're the cutest yeah so no, they are cute so you love borneo that's your fave and you did some conservation work in Australia? I did, yes. That was. Did you learn the language or was it like? It was a really difficult one to pick up, actually. <laughs> it was the accent. It threw me. <laughs> so I went with a children's cancer charity. It was a fundraising expedition, I suppose. We went and planted 10,000 trees in the Australian heat. That was a bit of a challenge. But I think if you work hard, you get a reward. So mm. I decided to stay on there for two weeks and flew up to Cairns and went swimming in the Great Barrier Reef. Although. Awful. I genuinely hated it. I was so scared. What, of sharks? Yeah, of everything. I kicked a bit of coral and that's me out. I'm done. It's funny you say that. Everything in Australia is trying to kill you. Now, I've been to Australia twice. Love it. I went to Melbourne, went to Sydney. Yeah, really enjoyed it. But I was scared of everything. Spiders, snakes, alligators, swimming knives. Everything's trying to kill you. There's nothing nice out there. I did get a pretty bad... They think it was a huntsman spider, well, the doctor said so. Oh, no, don't. Uh, And I I was in bed. No, you didn't. Yeah, bed for three days. I don't remember anything. It was... You got bitten by a... Mm -hmm. Yeah, on the leg. So you're right. Everything tries to kill you. I didn't even see it. I have no idea. Well, probably but... a good job. I, I would have freaked <laughs> oh, right so out. Then I'm not a fan of them. It no. got to the point where you're putting your shoes on, you're tipping them and bashing them oh, to make sure there's nothing just, in there. No, Whoa. I don't want it. I get the impression you'd give yeah. most things a go, would you? Yeah, there's, I don't think there's many things I wouldn't. I think life's Bungie an experience. Jump. I've got a list of things that I need to right. do, and that one's on there. You beat me. Not in a million years. Oh, do you not? I my, think once. You've got to well, try it once. Well, my ex-wife did one in, while we were in New Zealand. 
I think there was a fair degree of anxiety medication pumped down before she went, but I was not going near it. I mean, all credit to her. I think my fear was not just that I'm not a big fan of heights, which is odd because I'm a I was a pilot, so I'm not frightened of height. It's no. the ground. You should be frightened of the ground. It's the ground that kills you. But I think my biggest fear that was watching these 11 and 12 year olds just hurl themselves off. They've got and no I thought, sense of fear. If I get to the edge and chicken out, I've just chickened out something that an 11 year old's done. <laughs> I'm not having that. So I thought I'll just say, oh, I'm just not feeling it today. I don't. <laughs> just easier to not even try. No, I just for whatever reason, no. I think I'd get to the edge, panic a little bit, and just need someone to push me. It's the same with skydiving. I would love to give that a go, but. I think it's that moment of when you look over and think, oh, Well, that's gosh. the big mistake. Don't look over. So you've done all the travelling around the world, but you're staying in Devon. Are we keeping you here? Hopefully so. Hopefully Unless Hollywood so. beckons. A, well, you never know. If, uh, if they For need the, the James new James Bond, Bond <laughs> then I'm there. You've not trod the boards before? You're not a secret lovey darling actor who's going to, you know... I don't think I've got the face for it. That's the problem. Uh, oh, face for on. podcasts, but not for well, that's uh, what for everyone films. told me. Yeah. Paul from Fresh Air tells me I've got a face for radio. That's why I do the podcasts. That, that's why they're audio podcasts. Yeah. What do you love about Devon? I think just the lifestyle that you can have down here. It's amazing to work so close to the beaches and to have the opportunity. You know, we can finish work and be paddleboarding within an hour. There's just there's not many places that you can do that. I think it's a gorgeous area as well. So I live in Ivy Bridge at the minute and I can walk into the moors and such a short drive from the beach. We've got the best of both worlds, really, I would say. I just think it's a lovely, lovely place and it's completely grown on me. Yeah, well, it tends to for people. I love it. Well, obviously, I would say that because I'm the chief executive of the Devon Chamber of Commerce, but I <laughs> yeah. genuinely love it. I don't think I could represent an area I didn't love. I just think it's fantastic yeah there's um, just nothing bad about this place i just got friends that work in london and you know even if they're working normal hours although you know again i think the lifestyle there is slightly different it's just such a massive city and i know that they've got trendy bars and the, you know, there's cool things there but when they see pictures of us just popping to the beach in the afternoons and yeah. just being able to be on the water and out in the open air and you know i think it's just a completely different lifestyle and it's one that I would be very sad to have to give up. I think that's what the pandemic did as well. It kind of made us realise that you don't have to sit on a horrible sticky tube train for an hour every no. day. You can work anywhere that you like and enjoy life and still have a good completely. Work-life I think we were balance. really lucky down down this way in that you know even when you could only go out for what an hour a day or whatever it was that they let you, it was just such a nice area to be out in that time for. I guess if you're going out in London or the big cities, you know, it's just not the same, is it? There's not the open space and the greenery. There's just something really nice about the Southwest. Everyone I know who's lived in and worked in London have said, well, I'm glad I did it. I don't want to do it again. I think there's a point where you get to like, no, it's not for me. I love visiting London. Love to go and take oh, in the sights. Oh, there's so much going on there. But, but I just think this is a nice area to call home. Good. So... You heard it here first. The next James Bond lives in Devon. <laughs> and sadly, that's all we've got time for. I've really enjoyed meeting you. I'm sure there are a million other things we could talk about. Thank you for joining me, Stephanie Thank Marsh. you ever so much for having me. It's been lovely. Thank you. Thank you. And now it's time for Chamber Chat, where we talk to Chamber members and other interesting people and organisations from across the Southwest. Hello there and welcome back to our In Conversation With podcast from Devon and the Chamber of Commerce. This is Chamber Chat and I am joined by Dan Silver. Welcome, Dan. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, Dan, you formed Dash of Silver. I understand a charity that you formed with the help of family and friends to support people who find themselves affected by 
male cancer and you were affected yourself weren't you do you mind telling us about what happened and how it affected you i was diagnosed with testicular cancer in july 2009 i was misdiagnosed right. and that's the most important part to start off with misdiagnosed because they told me i had a water infection mm. and then sometimes you should know your body mm. and i knew that was not a water infection mm-hmm. i asked for a second opinion and they referred me down to a clinic and they told me there and then she knew what it was right and that's something you don't really prepare yourself for, that you have cancer at any age, and it's not nice. No. She told me that I had days to live. Did she? Yeah, I was on my last legs. Really? I'm sorry. I didn't yeah, know I was that. on my last legs. I couldn't open my eyes, couldn't breathe, couldn't walk properly, couldn't focus. And that, to me, ain't a water infection. No. <laughs> they were good as gold. Got me to see a surgeon specialist within a couple of weeks. Mm. I'm here to tell the story. I'm very fortunate. But obviously the charity is named after myself. During the battle, I got frustrated where... Everywhere I looked, it was about cancer. Mm. Turn the TV on, it was cancer. Turn the radio on, it was cancer. Read the paper, it was cancer. Mm. I thought, this ain't fair. So I had to do something about it. So I told my story. It went from there, really. It only went from telling my story to do a little fundraiser to be told I have a charity after myself. (laughs) (laughs) Not sort of a plan, put it that way. No, I bet it wasn't part of the plan. No, there's always a reason for everything in there. Well, funny enough, I genuinely didn't know that part of your story, but my next question was that we hear some traumatic stories about the pressure of the health service and how it sometimes lets patients down. That was going to be my next question. I was going to say it's changed over the years. 13 years ago, I think they were in a transitional period. I saw it firsthand. It was hard to get any communication or get any feedback, and you got lost in the system. Mm -hmm. And I made that point very clear. This ain't fair. You can't leave people out to dry, really. Mm. And we've come to an understanding that we've found a way to work together, you know? And it's a team create a service and it helps their patients. And it's a win situation for the patients, really. But it was very strained. You couldn't walk anywhere. You didn't know where you were going. You had a little room to yourself, closed off mm. for treatment. Now you've got a ward. So it's changed. Everything's got better, which is good, really. And the waiting times has changed. So what's your charity trying to do now? Which bit of the experience is it trying to sort of um, help with? It feeds off probably my battle, really, I think. Some people don't want to talk about it. So that's an issue we try to get around, you know. Men have got this male pride. They've got to sort it out themselves. Yeah, you know, we're immune to anything. We don't take pain. Pain's nothing to us, yeah. Mm. But that's not the case, you know. And it's we're trying to stop that stigma, trying to promote know your body. Let's play ball. You know, people understand self-examination. They say you're supposed to do it once a month. I would do it daily. That's my opinion. Because mm. cancer can change day to day. Mm. It don't care if it's 28th of January or 1st of July. Mm. <laughs> it makes no difference. And we just try to help people, all the patients that are diagnosed of testicular cancer, we support them mm. from the start to the end. What sort of form does that support take? There's restrictions because some patients don't want to know want their identity. Mm. So we've got to work around that, and it's down to the individual to contact the charity. It goes through the system, and we offer them support by giving them like, like a dash care pack to help them through the battle, and it gives them like, some luxuries to know that somebody else cares about them. Because when I went through my battle, there was nothing. There was no support. There was no network. I had to fight it. Yeah, I had a big family and friends. But they're not experts in it, are they? No, unless they've been through it. Hmm. I wouldn't say I'm an expert. You know, I'm one of the person who's lived it, and I know what's right, what's wrong what to look out for, you know. We try to guide them in the right way. Mm. And we help them through it. You know, when at the end, if they want to contact the charity, say thank you for your love and support, 
more than happy to. If they mm. don't, there's no hard feelings. No. I understand it. You're not there for the thanks, you're there to do the... No, but I mean, bit. I don't want publicity, I don't want the awards. It's not about that. You know, it's about helping people go through the battle mm. and creating that awareness. You mentioned a dash pack. What goes into a dash pack? When we created them, I thought about what I wanted mm. for my battle and I just sat there and I just ran off all the stuff. It started like toiletries, like shower gel and shaving stuff and that because you can have a long stay in treatment. Then we offered bath robes, hoodies, smooths, thermal gloves, heat socks. You get very cold when you're going through it. Yeah, you might be in the summer, but your body's still cold. Right. You know, when you go through chemotherapy or treatment, your body seizes up, so you're going to keep that warmth. Right. Just things I would know, because I've been through it. Yeah, but others wouldn't. No, and then we also put in something like a Kindle, then a Dash Meal ticket, where people can buy stuff, because treatment's very expensive. Mm. It ain't free. They don't provide you with anything. Mm. No food or drink. You could be there all day, five days a week. Oh, just like outpatient treatments. Yeah. So you're not inpatient getting fed. No, you just sat there. You still need that glucose. You still need that sugar. You need that energy. Not all patients take that offer, mm. but it's there for them. And it's just something I wanted. Mm. I mean, we could do more, really. And we change them every year. It goes on feedback, really, what the patient thinks. Mm. And you mentioned Kindle for boredom. So boredom's a big part of it, I guess, if you're sitting there being um, treated. Yeah, you can be wired up to a machine for eight hours. Oh, God. And it's not nice. Sometimes you need someone to pass that time. Mm. Just something to keep your mind active. Because if not, you just sat there looking at the screen and it beeps continuously. Mm. It just helps you mentally. And we just offer stuff. And if they want to talk, they can talk. If they send you a letter and say, thank you very much, you know, it was so engaging. It was nice to all people care. You know, that's a big tick for me. Mm. They know what someone cares. Yeah, well, that's what most of us want, isn't it? That's someone that cares about us. You talk about male cancer. So what are the male cancers? What are you supporting? Main was testicular. We try to make sure people understand you can get a lump, you get a swelling, you get a pain. Mm. You know, you can feel discomfort. I would always get it checked out. I mean, prostate, I'm not at an age to have a prostate check, but yourself might be, you know, mm. get your PSA level checked. You know. You're saying I'm old, then. <laughs> what I what say, age is it? <laughs> I wouldn't say that. I mean, sometimes I asked that question once, how old you got to be to have testicular cancer? And he looked at me, well, oh, it's supposed to be 15 to 40. Yeah, I was surprised about that. It's younger people, not older people. And I thought, well, that's wrong, because I knew a child, mm. can't really say it, was a lot younger than 15. Mm. And they had it. Mm. And it's just statistics. Yeah. I mean, I would just get yourself checked out any time, any discomfort, bowel cancer, you know, anything. You get cancer anywhere. Yeah, of course you can. But the male ones, you're thinking, so testicular, prostate, cancer of the penis, things like that. Penile, yeah. Any discomfort, you'll know. Mm. Sometimes it's maybe by nine or it's nothing really, a cyst. Mm. Lumps need to be checked out. Yeah. I still check regularly, I've got to. Mm. If I've got any discomfort, I'll go straight to a GP or doctor. You shouldn't have had to have gone through what you went through to know that and to do that. No. And that's the thing, sure, you know, men need to have that belief and that strength to go to the GP mm. but now GPs are more trained and may alert certain things I think because it's changed because when I went to my GP 13 years ago they gave me a story and said I had growing pains right. and you remember Adrian Mo, remember that mm. I felt like Adrian Mo, and they looked at me and thought what are you on about mm. I'm 29 not 16 yeah I know what a pain is now I think they're more educated Mm. Do you think there's better awareness? I think so, and yeah. The GPs themselves are more aware. I think they're aware more aware. You know, it's before you had to like a four-week waiting list. Now they give you an urgent two-weeks referral and you get a phone call within 48 hours. Yeah. 
they know the severity. Yeah. You know, you can't let a lump or discomfort or swelling just sit there. Mm. You only need to take something to wake it up. How far do you reach with your charity? Are you Plymouth City or...? We cover Plymouth, so it's from Plymouth up to, I say, South Hams, because obviously then it goes into Tavistock, mm-hmm. and that's covered by Tor Bay, I think. Mm. Last year, we branched out down to Cornwall, so we covered from Truro up to Tavistock, really. Mm. So it's getting better. I mean, it's slowly steps, you know? We support patients in Cornwall as well, but obviously more patients get diagnosed in Plymouth than they do in Cornwall. Mm. The figures are not that high, but they are high, if mm. that makes sense. Mm. Yeah, of course. Well, one is enough if it's... Yeah. Well, well, that's the thing is, you try to help anybody, you know, you try to save someone's life, and you don't mind if you save one person. If you save one person's life, your job's done. Mm. But obviously the bigger picture is more than that. Yeah. If you don't mind me asking, you were told 20... 2009. 13 years. And you <laughs> mind me asking, are you cancer-free now? Yeah, I was medically discharged October 2014. I used to have... Three monthly, six monthly scans, just to check. Occasionally, I have a scan just to make sure mm. things are still working fine down there. You know, like my markers are fine, mm. my blood levels are right. Any discomfort I get, you got to think about it. Yeah, of course. I've got be forefront of your mind. Because it's, I've got to practice what I preach, really. Yeah. I can't say, well, I put my problems to one side and help someone. Mm. When it's, well, actually, you should be following your own advice here. Your yeah, charity's guideline here is to self-check yourself. Why not you not checking yourself? If you'd like to feature on a future episode of In Conversation With, send an email to info at freshairstudios.com. Although you're cancer-free, are you able to lead a normal life? Are you able to forget it, or is it with you all the time? Are you able to enjoy life, or, or do tough, you really. worry um, about it all the time? It's hard, really. Some people just switch off and don't want to talk about it, which is understandable. Some people try to turn that negative into a positive which I did. Didn't expect it to be this full scale, obviously. Mm-hmm. If I'm being honest, because of the charity, what his aims are and what we're guided by in the guidelines, I think I probably relive it every day in my head and I probably will never lose it. It's only because I'm thinking, right, yes, I've got to do this today or I remember this day, I remember this moment, I remember this happened. Oh, I forgot about that. Mm. It just comes back in time. I think it never leave me. It's played a massive part in my life. You know, it's a memory, really. It was a period of my time, of my life. And everybody probably say it differently. I read the other day, Stuart, that there's two days in your life are most important. The day you were born and the day you found out why. And you found out why, did you? This was what it was for you? I thought, well, you know what? If anybody had to have cancer, it had to be me. If there's someone that had to do something about it, it had to be me. Where did that drive come from, do you think? Sorry, go back a step. What were you doing with your life? Where were you? What were you doing? Um, I had a attitude of happy-go-lucky life mm. you know not so I didn't have a care in the world that's a bit harsh I did I cared about everything around me you know I always worked hard I loved everything I had you know and suddenly maybe my life was too good mm. and they thought well you know what? let's flip a coin for him and it's not the heads it's the details this time see how he reacts to it I've always been brought up into a family to be competitive I've got to win mm. so I've got to win it every time and maybe that's my winning instinct my competitiveness is a battle I can't lose but mm. I know I could lose mm. That's what probably drove me on, probably. I've got to win this battle. So were you very sporting before? And um, you know? I wouldn't say sporting. I, said, I loved my sport. I, I just had to be good at everything. You know, yeah. I had to be the best in the <laughs> class. Yeah. First at this, first at that. Mm. Always had the best marks. I had to do first at this. And I thought, you know what? In the end, it didn't do me really much justice, did it? Because <laughs> that was my reward. Mm. And I felt frustrated about that. 
And you feel that? You feel it was like a personal sort of reward or a personal thing that happened to you for a reason? I think it was a bit of both. I think that was my reward. All those sacrifices I did as a child and all the things I neglected and didn't get the opportunity to do was pushed to one side. Yeah, that's my reward. Mm. And that's how my bitterness came in. I thought, that's not fair. But I will have the last laugh. I promise that. Because I can't let it win. They won't win. I'm always in a battle. Yeah. I was happy go lucky. I was 29. Moved in a new house. Planning to get married to my ex-wife. I don't like sound right, does it? <laughs> I know what you mean. <laughs> no, my ex-wife now. I thought, right, you know, life is good. And then one minute, everything you work for, live for, love for her, is taken away from you in 30 seconds. Mm. And, and I you remember that moment being told, oh, I suppose that will never leave you. Yeah, I remember it. I went to the hospital on the 24th of July. So this doctor, this specialist, and he sat me down with my ex-wife at the time. And he says, look, he said, let me look at the damage. We've got character here now. He's got a bit of personality, yeah? Mm. And I said, all right. He goes, right. He said, Dan, he said, I'm 99.9999% sure you have cancer here. He said, a part of me thinks you've got a water infection. And I just chuckled. He said, because this is what we're dealing with. Mm. He said, immaturity. People who haven't got a clue. Mm. They're professional. And I was all right. He said, your body's ill. You look unwell. Your body's unwell. I can tell you're unwell. He said, and leave it to me. He said, the problem I've got, Dan, he said, my schedule's full. I was all right. Thanks for that. Yeah. I was thanks for telling you that, dog. I said, you really cheered me up. He said, but leave it to me. And I just sat there. He told me to keep my mouth shut. He picked up the phone and it said him down to the tree what he thought of me. He rang up his secretary. He said, how am I looking for Monday morning? This is the 27th. She said, doctor, you're full. He goes, no, you don't listen to me, love. <laughs> well, am I looking like Monday morning? Monday. Oh, you're free in surgery at upper six. Done it in his own time. Mm. That was enough for me. He knew what I was at. He knew where you were in your life and he yeah. was going to help. Well, that's great to know. And he said, come in at six o'clock Monday morning, which was my dad's birthday. <laughs> this is always never a nice day. And it was there. And then he just told me, this is what I'm going to do, Dan. He said, I'm going to take away your tumour, he said. But I don't think I'm going to take away your pain. That's not my job. He's going to take away your tumour. You know, and he did it. I think I regretted the pain afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> Given the authorization to do it. Had but to be done. It had to be done. And he was good as gold. And I owe him my life, really, probably. But it was just a moment in my life, Stuart. Mm. And obviously, fast forward 13 years... I never thought I'd be in this position. Like I said to you, wake up every morning, not have a charity name after me. Never thought in my lifetime it would be on my life achievement. Mm. My greatest achievement, probably. And is your charity, um, Dash of Silver, is it your full-time job? Or you've got another job? Oh, or work, do you, I work. Do you... it's, my, it's my hobby, this is. Is it? Yeah. All right. <laughs> Doing <laughs> this in your spare time. I tell you, all our team and volunteers, bless them, have full-time jobs. Mm. They do it out of love, I think, for me, the respect for me, probably, I imagine so. And the fact that they've all been affected by it cancer in mm. some way or form or as a friend loved one personally maybe mm. and I don't dabble into that mm. I know all their histories I don't go to the pub I don't drink I don't smoke I don't call chaos around the city so <laughs> I thought well I'm you say that as if you used to <laughs> did you are you no I don't say that I mean um, as a child we all used to do stuff you know not bad stuff you know I think my neighbours would tell you different you know mm. you know but it's nice really when you've got people you care for and respect mm. part of your team they understand what it means you know we try to take away the personal part from it and make it more not personal because mm. obviously sometimes my personal input takes away from why what we try to achieve. Yeah, it's very full- personal to them. But yes, you- it's hard. I have a full-time job because obviously there's so much on my list I want to achieve mm. for the charity, which my team probably don't know yet. <laughs> Are they going to hear it here first? <laughs> no, oh, no. Not at all, not at all, not at all. <laughs> they know what I'm like. I always come up with an idea. I always try to think outside the box, try mm. to create something nobody else has done mm. and make a stamp on it and look in the market. I have a lot of respect for other people, yeah? Mm. And I don't want to 
take away something they've already done, if that makes sense. Yeah. Because it's disrespectful, and I don't think it's right. We're not in a competition. To answer your question, really, it's had a massive effect from the day I was diagnosed. Mm. And it's going to have a massive effect probably to the day I take my last breath, probably. But are you happy? Because you say you found out why you're living. You've got a purpose. Yes. You're fighting it every day, but you're doing it for something. Yeah, my purpose, I know what it is, you know. I always think we all have a keys to our legacies, yeah, or mm. our futures. For me, this is my legacy, and it'll live on. It will live on. You know, when I'm not here, it'll always be there. I'll make mm. sure of that. This is for the people. I'll try to do everything I can, you know, and the team can. We haven't got the biggest resources, you know. We haven't got the biggest financial support or nothing, but we do it. How can businesses support you? Where can we find out more? Um, our website, Dasha Silver. We've got Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We're very approachable. People said to me once, I'm not like an everyday charity founder. I don't walk down the street in a shirt and tie. <laughs> you know, I don't attend meetings in trousers or shirts or nothing. Mm. If it was cold outside, I'd be in my tracky bottoms probably, you know, <laughs> or jeans, yeah. I'm laid back. Typical down-to-earth mm. charity man. Always ways to get involved. You know, we're always looking for support, whether it's doing awareness talks or um, sponsorship or fundraising or any ways to promote self-examination. And that's important. Well, I was going to ask, so what would your advice be to people or perhaps employers yeah. uh, who have a colleague with cancer or you think they might? What would your advice be to them? I would tell them to not to be afraid. Don't let your fear overcome the truth, yeah? Because mm. obviously sometimes negative thoughts can make things worse. Because, for example, you might think you've got a little lump there or something, a lump there, and you're escalating it and you're escalating and you're overthinking it. And then that makes you feel worse because you think it's something's wrong. Also, try them to be brave. Tell them not to be afraid, obviously. Seek medical attention. Mm. And early, I guess. Early diagnosis and early prevention is the key. You know, mm. you've got to prevent the worst happening. And that's any form of cancer. Mm. You know, same as women, they're more forward than men. And when it yeah. comes to checking ourselves. And more prepared to talk. And that's the thing, you know, you've got to talk to your male colleagues and your family and friends. Hey, look, you know, I had a bit of discomfort this week. Get that checked out, you know. Mm. Have that confidence to speak to your people you communicate with and you work with and you relax with. You'd be surprised people might have the same problem and may have the same. Actually, I know what you mean. I've had that discomfort before. Mm. I found out it was only this. Don't try to investigate it yourself because social media and Google <laughs> can tell you. Yeah. You think you've got Dr. an headache. Google, yes. yeah. If you type in a headache, it tells you you've got a brain tumour, you know? Uh, absolutely. I knew a doctor who had a sign above his desk that said, please don't confuse your Google search with my medical degree. Yeah, <laughs> you know? that's exactly what I mean, you know? <laughs> Google is a great tool, but I think there needs to be guidelines on what you can type in, really. <laughs> so know? your advice then, speak to people about it. Yes. Check yourself regularly yes get early treatment yes get early at, diagnosis and support dash of silver at dash of silver uk. dan look thanks for coming in thank you for sharing your personal story i hope this does some good and people yeah, hear it and really. like you say and if one person just checks themselves out gets to the doctor earlier then you've done a lot of good and thank you for sharing your personal story dan. Pre- appreciate it thank you for having me if you're not already a chamber member and you'd like to join Membership starts from as little as £245 per annum plus VAT. Your business can gain yearly benefits in excess of £2,200. Check out the membership section at devonchamber.co.uk. Be part of something bigger and join today to connect, grow and succeed with the Devon and Plymouth Chamber. In Conversation With is produced by Fresh Air Studios. 
full audio production services for podcasts, live links, and corporate communications. Visit freshairstudios.com. Presented by Stuart Elford. Produced and engineered by Paul Philpot. Edited and mixed by Martin Burgess-Moon. Production support by Lisa Hartwell. Copyright Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce and Fresh Air Studios Limited. All rights reserved.